Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. If, if history, you know, rhymes, um, uh, you know, as Mark Twain would say, um, I would say probably, you know, we're, you know, large organizations are going to run behind on automation, um, except for some like highly exemplar organizations that have lots of resources that are highly innovative. Welcome to Needlestack, the podcast for professional online research. I'm Jeff Phillips, and I'll be your host today. And I'm Aubrey Byron, a producer on Needlestack. Today, we're joined by Dr. Stephen Colthart, Associate Professor at University of Albany and the Director of the Open Source Intelligence Laboratory, which is opening there in April. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Aubrey. Okay, so we're talking about this lab. Stephen, your launch sounds like it's just a few months away. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the lab and what you hope to accomplish there? Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, so the uh, overall purpose of the lab is to provide an academic home um, for the study of open source intelligence. And when I say the study of open source intelligence, I mean studying um, about OSINT as well as how to do OSINT. So in terms of the about OSINT, it's, you know, for example, looking at the integration of OSINT um, into organizations, into the government, um, but also, too, um, looking at the wider impact on society as well. And then, as I was saying, we really hope to um, uh, really we really will uh, get into studying um, the actual practice of OSINT as well, um, looking at tradecraft and so forth. Yeah, we talk a lot uh, on this podcast about the fact that, you know, information is not intelligence. Can you tell us a little bit more about what offerings you plan to have for students and especially not just on the information gathering side, but also on the analysis side? Yeah, so down the road, I mean, one of the things that um, we'll be doing is uh, working for uh, clients um, in the government. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the great things about uh, the college that the lab is in, which uh, the, the name of the college is quite long. Um, it's the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security and Cybersecurity, or CEHC. Uh, one, thing, one great thing about CEHC is that we're located in Albany. Um, and so we have some good connections um, to the New York State Department of Homeland Security or DISHES. Um, so, uh, you know, we are, you know, see ourselves like finding uh, clients in state and local government, as well as in the private sector as well. Because um, I'm sure as you talk about here on the need, clients in the um, private sector um, uh, have a great need for OSINT. 
Um, in terms of activities um, uh, for the students, I also see in terms of on the analytical side, uh, also doing academic research papers. Uh, in fact, I have a couple interns now that are even before the lab's getting started, they're helping me um, put together an, ac an academic paper uh, looking at everything that's been written in the uh, professional literature and academic literature about OSINT as a field. Oh, so wow. they're already starting to work on it. <laughs> and that's a big field. That's so that's a mix. That's a mix of you have actual projects coming in from the government side or or private that they can work on in addition to kind of more traditional, you know, I'm being taught. I mean, and the reason I ask that is because there's a lot, you know, thanks to Twitter, there's a lot of amateur sleuths out there that have, you know, kind of come into a, it's, it's basically self-taught OSINT. Um, so maybe a little bit what do you think about um, as far as what what is there to be gained by approaching OSINT from a more traditional education style? I don't know if these people, these kids are going to get a degree or a certificate. Um, what do you think about turning it into a traditional education? Yeah, I mean, if I can just kind of step back, Jeff, and just kind of say mm -hmm. more broadly about an academic perspective on mm -hmm. OSINT. Um, I think that one of the great values of the OSI lab is going to be that we're going to act as also an integrator because one of the things that I've noticed um, uh, in my in my career as um, an, an academic who does applied scholarship is that sometimes when I talk to folks who are outside of academia, there might be something that they're curious about and they may not necessarily know that there might be some good research that's already out there, maybe in another field, maybe something they haven't heard of yet. And I think of an example, I was at um, a conference in uh, Ottawa uh, it, it was a Five Eyes conference, and I remember one of the speakers, just he was a fantastic speaker, highly knowledgeable, but one of the things really that he said blew me away. He said, you know, we need to have, uh, remember it was scales uh, or measurements for um, what counted as rigorous intelligence analysis. And I was sitting there in the audience, and I'm thinking to myself, but that exists. People have done that research with intelligence analysts, but academics on the research side were not typically good um, at getting the word out. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, along the lines of kind of the OSI lab being this academic home is also being an integrator of different uh, knowledge sources um, for things that might be out there. Because, you know, one of the things I'm already kind of realizing is I'm starting to scope out this 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 huge field through this project I mentioned a moment ago that my students are working on. It's just how diverse the different groups are. And I think you probably see this on the on the Needlecast, right? Like you have mm -hmm. people that are working on human trafficking issues. You have people that are doing online research about national security issues, and they're working in a variety of different places. And so I think bringing together all this knowledge to bear and best practices is something that I think academia is well-placed to do. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and people are starved, to be honest with you, for, for those kinds of best practices, um, whether that's, I mean, there's the tools side, which we hear a lot from Needlestack listeners asking, you know, for tips and tricks, but just, um, uh, just, you know, what are the best practices for, for doing this stuff? Um, uh, cause they're out just actually doing OSINT, trying to find out about how to do OSINT, right? They're out there researching to figure out what are the best practices, which is half, if not two thirds of the reason why we even started the podcast. So that, that's great. Yeah. That's a lot of why this podcast exists. And also just to have like the perspective of a fraud analyst might help someone like a journalist uh, look at OSINT from a different perspective. Uh, part of the mission um, on the OSI lab is to 
research the impact of OSINT on society. What do you think that impact is and what sort of studies do you think um, you'll conduct on that? That's a good question, Aubrey. Um, so, I mean, I kind of, I share the view that probably uh, you all do and probably, you know, and we see in a lot of commentators. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I generally believe that OSINT has um, democratized the intelligence function um, for organizations that it would have been outside of their reach 20, 30 years ago, um, or, you know, wouldn't have been as insightful. So I think that's broadly true. And we see this, you know, not only in, um, um, I guess, like traditional organizations at state, local and federal level and private sector, but we also see it too, I think, interestingly, in, um, uh, you know, some of the groups and some of the networks that have formed of uh, people that are doing something at least like open source research and open source intelligence uh, to support um, operations to help, um, uh, you know, Afghan translators get out of Afghanistan or mm -hmm. to provide assistance um, overseas, say, in Ukraine. I think there's kind of some interesting th lines there that are blurred, too, between um, uh, open source intelligence and almost like covert action, where there's actual activity on the ground to help, say, um, you know, a person out of Afghanistan that leverages open source to enable that type of um, operation. So I think like there's kind of an interesting democratization going on and a lot of people are talking about that. Um, so I think that that's definitely true. I do think there's a little bit at times of um, just like anything that's, that's, that's very new and very shiny. Sometimes there can be a little bit of, um, I guess, exaggeration as well. Um, I've kind of, you know, being an academic who does applied work I, and not being, you know, strictly a practitioner, I've had a little bit of taste of this. So, um, you know, one of my, in one of my classes, I had the students do um, open source intelligence research and do um, geographic profiling, um, which is typically a, a technique used in law enforcement to estimate the probable places that a suspect would be or, you know, their patterns of, of behavior and life and, mm -hmm. and so forth. And we want to do that uh, for trying to find Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, so the leader of ISIS, um, when he was actively being sought out um, uh, by the U.S. government. And so we did decently. We, we, we published an academic paper on it for at least the first half of the, the manhunt. We were looking over the course of about the first six months of I, I'm trying to remember when this would have been. It was just before the pandemic. But we were basically... Sure. We were basically doing well um, in terms of identifying probable places where he could be using a variety of different open source information. But we totally went off the trail um, in the last like few months that he was um, on the on the road um, and fleeing. And when that was uh, was when he spe specifically went to Syria and you know, kind of backtracking and looking at what happened, the information on what was um, on, on, on where he was, was in, I think, in theory out there so through some um, reporting and human sources on the ground the New York Times had. Um, but these weren't published reports. And the reason why I'm telling this story is that I think at times we kind of get caught up with how far OSINT can go. But in reality, um, you kind of, there's almost more, you, you got to be there. There, there. You have to go a little further. And there's a really, and just one more quick example of this, there's a, um, a completely unrelated to OSINT, I would say, but relevant example of um, uh, Vox, the news outlet. They did a story looking at um, these weird circles that people had noticed that were on the floor of the desert um, in a North African country. 
And they were basically trying to, so this reporter from Vox was trying to figure out, you know, what are these circles there for? And he did everything. Like he contacted experts. He combed the internet. I mean, he did everything. And ultimately what he had to do was he had to send someone there. He had to send someone into the desert. That was the only way to figure out that those circles were in fact something having to do with petroleum uh, exploration. But there's kind of a certain point where we only go so far. And I think sometimes with OSINT we might like overpromise on what it's capable of um, because there's just so much, you know, well-founded excitement around it. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? That you're, you know, that's kind of the opposite of sometimes what we're seeing. Um, you know, if I think of some of the amateur sleuths that, especially with the Ukraine war and what's going on with Twitter, um, you know, where they're spending time saying, well, that person is on the ground, but is, and supposedly they've posted this picture, this image, but is that, is that true? Are they, are they where they say they are? Um, or um, is this from, you know, um, a conflict years and years ago, but you're talking about it in the reverse way, which is, you know, eventually if I can't get a satellite that's going to go within five feet of the ground there to understand what's going on, then that you have to get someone physically there for the, we'll call it the, the last mile of, of the intelligence. That, that, that makes sense that, you know, you don't want to over, over promise. Right. Right. Now you touched on this slightly and, and you, um, it, but a few years ago, you wrote an article about the need for a, the, a better flow of information from research labs uh, to national security decision makers. Um, so do you see that the will the OSI lab fit into and communicate with the larger intelligence community? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, and, and Jeff, I'm impressed that, that that you took the time to find that academic paper. It, 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 it fights back about what I was saying about um, the difficulty of academics uh, getting our getting our work out there. So thank you for reading that or sure. finding it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like definitely OSI Lab will be engaging uh, with the community of practice, the IC uh, specifically, of course, as well. Um, a, a major finding when I wrote that paper was that Certainly the content matters, um, but what really matters is um, knowledge translation. So how do we present ideas in a way that um, will be will be found and read and used by practitioner audiences? And so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the, um, on the OSINT side, one of the things I'm really curious about is um, looking at this question of, um, when it comes to open source intelligence research and setting aside academic research for a second, um, you know, how often do customers use OSINT based products say um, over other types of products and um, what type of, you know, are there, are there aspects of different types of OSINT products that are more persuasive to different types of customers and people have, you know, have studied this in other fields, you know, looking say at um, whether or not, um, uh, research evidence is useful, say, to government decision makers, but it hasn't been done in the OSINT field that I'm aware of to really understand, you know, what makes an OSINT product persuasive to a particular customer. I, um, I think that on the OSINT side would be would be quite um, interesting. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to clarify for us because at first when you said OSINT products, I was thinking of tools or feeds of of OSINT information, and but you're talking about the the final the product the output from your investigation, the what product form does that take? Is that right? That's what we're referring to. And, and so that someone, right. you know, after this investigation, this research, how do they best 
uh, get access to it or and digest it. Um, that's what you mean, correct? That's what I mean. That's right. Okay. That's right. And, and, I'm, and I'm holding that separate than, you know, say like, um, so to talk about research for a second, right? So the, so let's say, you know, we do research trying to understand, say, um, the implementation of OSINT and, you know, a federal, a federal agency or, or, so, mm-hmm. or something. In terms of knowledge translation, it's going to be key that, you know, you know, we're going to engage with folks like yourself. We're going to, you know, you know, go on um, uh, popular media, be able to do edit, um, do uh, opinion articles and so forth to get that information out there. Because a lot of times, like I was saying, a lot of academic knowledge is siloed and it could potentially be useful. Um, So I think, you know, getting out there, disseminating um, information that is going to be absolutely key for the work of the OSINT lab um, as well. Just to more directly answer your question. Well, yeah, it, but um, by the way, I took this in, a, in through my head in a couple of ways. One, I totally get it from from the lab's perspective, uh, the OSI labs. Um, you, you know, you're going to be doing great work. Um, how do we, how do, how do people make sure people get access to it and, and don't duplicate it. At the same time, by the way, I also started going down my head thinking about your traditional, you know, in the professional world, you're, you're doing OSINT and you do investigation research and how am I going to publish this out? What does that actual uh, um, write-up look like or, um, you know, report that I disseminate that, um, um, what are the best practices in, in, you know, there's what you're doing online. I'm taking screenshots, I'm finding videos, I'm doing, you know, finding phone numbers, I'm doing all kinds of stuff for physical locations. And what's the best way to then present that up the stack in terms of um, um, threat intelligence reports. What are some of the trends you're seeing within OSINT and what do you think the role of automation will be for practitioners in 2023 and going forward? Um, yeah, this is like, yeah, this is the million dollar question. And I think probably a lot of listeners are thinking about um, uh, ChatGPT um, and its role. Um, yeah, I I would be, I think, um, overly confident if I knew exactly how um, AI, for example, is going to be shaping uh, shaping uh, online research. I mean, one thing that I would say, and this is for, you know kind of based on my own research, is that when it comes to technologies... Just because they're just just because they exist, and anyone in the government knows this, just because they exist doesn't mean that they're actually going to be used in government, right? So, like, mm-hmm. just because particular automation tools might be available, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be used. And I, a few years ago, I did a study of the U.S. Border Patrol, and I originally I was I was very interested in this idea of how is the U.S. Border Patrol using data science concepts, technologies? Um, you know, this is a massive organization. Um, so I did this, this, this research project. And I remember one of the first people that I spoke to, um, they told me, they said that, um, you know, the, the border patrol doesn't really have a concern for data science because we haven't mastered Excel spreadsheets yet. And I thought to myself, my God, you know, like we, especially, and this is, this is true. I think of, um, uh, people that are commenting at a, at a high level is that once we really get down to the implementation level, you can see that there are distinct challenges there about, you know, so in the case of the Border Patrol, you know, there was the issue of there was a counterculture uh, within parts of the Border Patrol against that type of innovation. Mm-hmm. There was, um, on the other hand, um, technical issues. So, you know, just because the tool is available, you have to be able to make it play within the current IT infrastructure. Um, so you had you had that you had, um, gosh, I mean, you, 
it, just a variety of different problems. So, I mean, I guess to answer your question, Aubrey, in a, in a fairly succinct way, I mean, I guess I would say that, you know, it's, it's kind of unclear what direction we're going in, but it, if, if history, you know, rhymes, um, uh, you know, as Mark Twain would say, um, I would say probably, you know, we're, you know, large organizations are going to run behind on automation, um, except for some like highly exemplar organizations that have lots of resources that are highly innovative. Um, most, I think, are going to lag a little bit like the Border Patrol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I want to go a little bit back. I'm, I'm picturing this this lab and students entering uh, into into this field. Um, some basic questions for you, you know, when you guys get a project or you're giving them a, a, a project, can you know, how do you go about telling them about what sources to use for collecting open source intelligence or, uh, you know, what kind of process to use for their analysis on, on finding information and, and it taking them from um, from step to step as they um, go go about the, the project? So is there is there certain models they're following? Are there certain sources that you're teaching them about that um, that are their you know the best starting points and ways to go about engaging in an in an OSINT investigation? And so the the way that typically you know I've taught OSINT is to you know kind of follow a, um, the, a general process that I, I I had learned myself through trainings with uh, Arno Reuser and Reuser's Information Service, um, and that kind of approach has been the general approach that I've taken. But one of the things that I've gotten really interested in, Jeff, is, um, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering too if you've had any discussion about this on the program, um, is this idea of having some type of overall body of knowledge surrounding OSINT competencies and skills. Um, the, the National Geospatial Intelligence Foundation they have something called an essential body of knowledge or EBK. Mm -hmm. um, and the EBK was developed, I believe, uh, primarily by academic researchers. Um, and the purpose was in a highly, you know, in a fast moving, you know, you know, technical, somewhat technical field, technical field of uh, GeoInt. What makes someone a GeoInt analyst or an imagery analyst? Um, I... I think like we have a strong need for that in the OSINT field. Um, and I'm not familiar if anyone has kind of taken that approach to try to create a universal body of knowledge. But one of the things that I think that the OSI lab should do uh, to your question is to start to like formally scope out what it means to be able to say that someone has the essential body of knowledge surrounding um, being an OSINT analyst. Are you familiar with any? There are. I'm, I'm thinking. Um, I mean, so first of all, you'll. There's two sides to this. When I end up talking with people, there's the the pure tools side, and there are websites. Uh, there are people that just like to keep a body of the latest and greatest. You know, and it could be hundreds of links long. Of these are great OSINT tools, right? For for doing the job. That's that's one side of it. In terms of the actual process and how you go about it. Um, I have seen, um, not many, but there are, I think I'd have to go look up, I believe it was through SANS. There might be some, you know, where there's mm -hmm. some, some level of courses, uh, that you can take to, to get, you know, get, get trained in OSINT at a very base level. And then from there you, you would get into some, you know, professional services from individuals that might sell a, a, a platform that has 
you know, video training, for example, or you get into vendors such as us. I mean, Authenticate, if you buy our product, has a uh, uh, the silo application on the back end. We have a, what's called silo training. And, you know, but that's that's once you're a customer and, you know, tradecraft skills to how to use the tools of the platform. But I don't think there's a there's not a ton of of, of that OSINT certification. I've, I've seen some. So I think that would be great. But there has been kind of a call for that. We covered on, we do an OSINT news roundup on our blog of just kind of relevant OSINT news. And there was a great paper in the Stanley Center about the need for kind of more rigor for the definition of OSINT. And he's somewhat maybe controversially for some of our audience said that basically what amateur sleuths are doing on Twitter shouldn't even be considered OSINT. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't have the same rigor necessarily as government analysts would do. And there was another paper about creating kind of an OSINT buyers club. But yeah, I agree. There's not a lot of consistency about everything from the definition to the process to anything. I think because it's still so newly being adapted in this space. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I mean, I, I can say one of the first things we did with a lab is um, working with my colleague, um, uh, Brian Nussbaum, we created a definition of open source intelligence because we needed to have something. Because one of the things I've noticed in having discussions with stakeholders is that everyone's kind of having this discussion about what OSINT is, but it, it's not entirely clear that we're all talking about the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, the way that, that we define it, Aubrey, is, is, is actually, I think, kind of along the lines of the, the other guests that you were just speaking of, that, you know, we, we wouldn't consider... Um, open source intelligence, um, you know, say people doing online sleuthing, uh, simply, you know, um, for their own personal interest, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, for us, there has to be some type of intelligence requirements being met. And that's typically within an organization um, with a customer or a set of consumers that would use the intelligence product. But that being said, I also got done telling you earlier about how like there's these interesting kind of open source networks of people that are not really in a formal organization, but grow organically like the groups, uh, the veterans groups that were helping um, Afghans out in Afghanistan. So, I mean, I think like one of the things we have to have is a little bit of a tolerance here on ambiguity. And certainly like that's the way that we wrote our um, uh, our definition white paper. We say in it like this is one definition, like this is what we say that it is. Um just at least try to facilitate. Yeah, another good example is Elliot Higgins, right? Like he didn't have any sort of professional analyst background and Bellingcat is now extremely respected. So yeah, just to that point that there's a gray area for sure. You know, and if and if it's okay too, like can I kind of give you the main components of how we define it? Sure. Sure, yeah, that would be great. I mean, so we say that, you know, um, open source intelligence is legally, legally obtained public uh, uh, or commercial information that's been validated, analyzed and disseminated to meet an intelligence requirement. So in there, we have the components of publicly and, available, publicly and commercially available information, uh, legally obtained, processed and analyzed to meet an intelligence requirement. And we're totally agnostic on the field. I mean, it could be in cybersecurity, it can be for counterterrorism, um, it could be any level of government, but basically as long as it has those components, that's what we think of as OSINT. Yeah, that's a great de definition. I think, I think too, like if we, you know, if we, one kind of danger of leaving things fairly open and ambigu ambiguous is that, you know, it kind of opens up the possibility of, of I think in, in some cases, you know, 
if we don't kind of have some type of definition around what it is, um, I think it can provide an aura uh, for, for folks that perhaps um, maybe don't have the best of intentions. Um, so in our white paper, you know, we referenced that, you know, there was a recent government case where an FBI um, uh, agent basically admitted in court that open source is just federal speak for a Google search. So we, you know, if we don't kind of like go on here and kind of stake our, um, you know, is a, is a community, if we, instead of communities, if we don't come in and kind of stake our own, you know, kind of ground here, I think like we seed it for other people to use the terminology um, uncontested. Really quick before we wrap up, is there any advice you want to leave with the audience or final thoughts? I think like, you know, if, if I can kind of speak to the folks that maybe are, are, are newer to the field, um, you know, that may or may not be students, uh, but are, are, are more new. I mean, what I would say, you know, is think less about specific tools and more about general process, which is something that we were touching on earlier. Um, you know, certainly there are great tools, uh, like the one that sponsors this podcast. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> but I, I would say too, that just to kind of, you know, be aware of those tools, you know, use those tools. And also, you know, the, the, the fundamentals, meat and potatoes of being good researcher are going to translate across tools. The tools will enhance the work, um, but the tools by themselves um, are not the work. Um, the other thing, you know, I'd say too, is that if, and I've, you know, this is speaking from personal experience with students and then experience myself is that when it comes down to if you're curious about something, one fantastic thing about living in the year 2023 or, you know, living in the time we live now is that if you have a question about something, you can just contact people. And I have been amazed at if I've had a question about OSINT tradecraft, about OSINT, about something of substance matter. If you just reach out to people and, you know, you're clear about what you want and you're respectful, I mean, I think most of the time people get back to you. And I think sometimes if you're more junior, you kind of have this feeling of reticence. You're like, I'm not this important person. This person's never going to respond to me. But you never know unless you try. And ultimately, you know, not only can you learn something useful, but you might forge um, a relationship there. Um, and. And then I would kind of say to the, the, the people that, you know, maybe are a little bit more established in, in the field, you know, to consider the role of academia, um, to consider, you know, that um, academia can, you know, potentially provide this uh, wider perspective that otherwise, you know, we might not have. Um, so that there's something that there is something of value there. That's great. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Stephen Colthart, for joining us today. If you liked what you heard, you can view transcripts and the other episode info on our website, authenticate with an eight.com slash needlestack. That's authentic with the number eight.com slash needlestack. And be sure to let us know what you thought of the show on Twitter. That's at needlestackpod and to like and subscribe wherever you're listening today. We'll be back next week with more OSINT research tips. We'll see you then. Bye.